0: We're in Acts chapter 16. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles there, Acts 16. A bunch of little things. Small things that if if you just kind of blow through the chapter, and I I have learned this studying through the Bible, there are so many little things that if we race through the Scriptures and the intent just to get done, we miss the the treasure trove that is truly here. So we're not going to finish the chapter tonight. We'll we'll get through... uh, Oh, about eighteen, nineteen verses, somewhere around there. But a lot of little things that emerge just in this seemingly insignificant story itself. I mean, it's just Paul and Silas heading out on the second missionary journey, and they go to different places. And again, I've read this so many times in my life, and just read it as a historical fact. Okay, they went here, they went here, they did that, and this happened, or that's interesting. But move on. So much here. Well, Father, as we study this, I just pray now that Your blessing would fall on, on this group of Bible students and on this fellowship that is so truly hungry to be in Your Word, that can't get enough of Your Word. Father, what an amazing thing. It shouldn't be, but it, it is, and it's exciting and it's encouraging for me. And I know, Father, it blesses You because You want us to love Your Word. You have magnified Your Word above all your name, so your word tells us. And so as we get into it tonight, Lord, I just pray we wouldn't miss anything. And I ask that you would do as you always do, speak personally to each individual. There are things you need to say to some brothers and sisters here tonight that I won't say, but you can say, Lord. So may we hear you, that we might grow in your word here tonight. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we use the phrase often. In fact, I think a little book was made out of the phrase, don't sweat the small stuff. Now, don't sweat the small stuff. And around my house and maybe around your homes, you've used the phrase, first world problems. We suffer from an awful lot of first world problems. You know, oh no, the dishwasher doesn't work today. Whoa. Whoa. I'm going to have to wash the three dishes on the sink. You know. First world problem, the cell phone just went down. Oh no. What will we do? First world. Not big stuff, little things. Don't sweat the small stuff. Well, in Jesus, I would put it this way, don't miss the small stuff. And as I said, I'm going to point out some small stuff to you that is actually pretty big. But it's seemingly insignificant. Don't miss the little gestures of the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is often gesturing, doing little things in our lives. And and again, we can blow right by them or we can get frustrated by them, not understanding that it really is the Lord behind what's happening in us and around us. I want to give you an example before I even get to Acts 16. And it's out of Zechariah chapter 4. And you can turn there, it's just back a few books, or I'll read it to you either way. Zechariah chapter 4, in verse 6. Some of this will be very familiar. Especially verse 6. And they said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Often we are familiar with that. Many Christians will call that to mind. But he goes on, he says, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain. And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish. What house are we talking about? The
1: temple.
0: The temple. The second temple. The house that Zerubbabel built. Remember Solomon built the first temple. Now we're talking about the second. Zechariah in the days of the building of the second temple and and prophesying of these things and encouraging Zerubbabel and others get to the work. Stay to the task. But know what he says. His hands will finish and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? We study Zachariah. I didn't even remember reading that verse. Who has despised the day of small things? In other words, who's missed the small stuff? Uh, To whom are the little things unimportant? Who is willing to miss what I'm about to do here? It may seem like a small thing. He says, but these seven These seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven, he then says, are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Okay, he's talking about the second temple. Which was, when it was completed by Zerubbabel, a trifling thing compared to the first temple. It was a little thing. It did not have the grandeur. It did not have the glory. It didn't have the sheen. There was not the pomp and the circumstance and the dedication of the first temple when the Shekinah glory of God came into the temple and filled it such that the priests could not even do their work. An astounding, marvelous day with all Israel gathered around and and Solomon proclaiming things. And This would just not be that way. Just a little thing. And God says, But who has despised the day of small things? This little house may not seem such a big deal to you now, but something more astounding, more glorious, more fantastic than the glory of the Lord filling the first temple will walk on foot into the second temple, Jesus Christ. Don't despise the day of small things. It may seem a little thing today, but it may actually be huge. Haggai 2 verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. Literally, the Prince of Peace come into the world. So what may seem to be small potatoes to us may actually be great godly gestures yielding amazing returns. Don't miss the little things. We're going to see several of these little things. Small moves of the Holy Spirit, seemingly little gestures in this 16th chapter of Acts. Now, Paul, joined by Silas, remember, Sylvanus, Silas, both names of the same guy, he's out on the second evangelistic expedition. He heads north from Antioch. Now, you may recall Antioch, if you're standing in Jerusalem, if you go straight north, three, 350 or so miles, roughly, you're going to end up in Antioch, up in Syria. And from Antioch, they're going to head north, further north, straight up through Syria. Then they're going to come around the Mediterranean, at the top of the Mediterranean there, that, that uh, corner of it, and they're going to head west toward Galatia. And they're going to come back to the town of Lystra. Do you remember Lystra? Remember the Lystrines, People living there? Follow along. First verse of chapter 16, Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Now, these are the same folks here in Lystra who at once pronounced Paul, the Greek god Hermes. And then, same afternoon, are persuaded to hurl stones at him. From Hermes to hurling, you know, all at the same time. Obviously a fickle people, and yet, and yet, Paul comes back and there's a church. And he's greeted there. Now reading about the first missionary journey of Paul, you wouldn't have thought he was there long enough to do much of anything. Just the small stuff. Maybe he just pronounced a few verses, explained a few things, grabbed hold of one or two believers, but not much. Yet now when he comes back on the second journey, here in Lystra and Derby, there's churches. There are faithful followers. There's even this man named Timothy, this young man, Timotheus, whose father's Greek, mother's Jewish, but she's a believer. And they're all part of the deal here. Paul returns to Lystra to find thriving faith, a thriving faith community of Jesus' people, and among them meets Timothy, just a young man, you know, insignificant. I mean, what can a young man, what can a teenager really do for the gospel? Just a kid. Paul meets him there, his father being Greek. Now, the implication in the scriptures here is that his Greek father was a non-believing pagan. Mother was Jewish and a believer in Christ. The father was nothing. But his grandmother, we later learn, also was a believer. In fact, grandma believed first and then mom and then Timothy And here we see this young man, Timothy, first time we meet him, but he's already an influential believer among the disciples in Lystra and Derby. Which again means that even a young person can have great influence if they are led by the Lord, if they're a follower of Jesus. And so what we see here is what we might call, and I'll call out a few little insignificant things, but I would call this grandmotherly guidance. Timothy is a believer in Jesus Christ. will go on to be on Paul's mission team. will go on to pastor the church at Ephesus. A remarkable young man, because of the faith of his grandmother, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, And I am sure that it is in you as well. And so I ask you tonight, where did your faith first dwell? You ever stop and thought about where did your faith come from? I, I know our faith comes from the Lord. John 6, Jesus says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him to me. So God is active in the development and the birthing of our faith. But where did your faith start? Who came before you? Did you have some grandmotherly guidance? See, I did. Now my mom and dad were believers, strong believers. I was raised going to church, being involved in church. But to this day, I will tell you, the most influential person in my life spiritually was my grandmother. Both of them were amazing. But one of them that was stricken with cancer for the last 16 years of her life, flat on her back in bed. And she had a more profound impact on my faith than anyone in my life. Grandmotherly guidance. So I can relate a little bit to Timothy here. Where did your faith first dwell? Who believed before you that led you to faith? And if you can recall that person, bring that person to mind right now, I would encourage you to praise God for them. And to thank God for them and to ask God to bless them. And if they've already gone on home to be with the Lord, just say, hey Jesus, would you mention to them how much I appreciated them here? Where our faith first dwelt. I think that you will find most of us didn't come to faith because we were bowled off our feet by some booming evangelist. Proclaiming and declaring the word of the Lord. I have found it to be a reality, gang. In my ministry, it's rare that someone comes to faith in the moment of me teaching. It usually is because they have been with a friend or a family member. Someone who has led them to faith in the Lord. And all of a sudden it will spark because they have been prepared in relationship. We were drawn to the Father, by the Father, through a grandmotherly guidance, nudged perhaps by a mother's prayer, a dad's devotion, a sibling's certainty, a friend's faithfulness. Who led you to the Lord? It's, it's the little things that sometimes we forget to praise Him for. Well, verse 3 Paul wanted this man, Timothy, to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Wait a minute! Didn't we just fight this battle, Paul? And by the way, you won! Think back to Acts 15, just the previous chapter. Paul was in Jerusalem fighting the battle for Gentiles to not have to be circumcised. He's on the side of grace. And then the apostles, ultimately, the council at Jerusalem, they talked about it, they struggled through it, they didn't pray about it, but they finally came to a decision. You're right. Circumcision was never mentioned by Jesus as as important for salvation. And so they send a letter with Paul. Paul has that letter with him. It's ironic. The letter that he takes is, is a letter to take to all the churches saying, You don't have to be circumcised. But here he finds Timothy, says, I want him on my mission team, and he circumcises him. What's going on, Paul? There's a difference between doing something out of self righteousness and doing something out of sensitivity for other people. And of course, that's what Paul. Is about here. Uh, The second little thing we might miss is this is what I would call a considerate circumcision. (laughs) I was going to say a sensitive circumcision, but I thought that was too weird. A considerate circumcision. Paul is taking the gospel to the Gentiles, but he still has a deep, abiding love for the Jewish people, his people. He still holds them in high regard. He still has a deep consideration for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And basically here, by circumcising Timothy, what Paul does is he makes what could be an issue a non-issue. That as they now go out and into these towns, if they run into Jews that they would like to preach the Gospel to, if they run into Jewish believers, you're not going to have to fight the battle. You're not going to have to have the argument over and over everywhere you go. He's circumcised. He can just say to anyone who has a problem with Timothy, look, his mother is a Jew and he is circumcised. What else do you want? How much more do you need? He makes it a non-issue. 1 Corinthians 7.19, Paul will write, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. And that was always Paul's pattern. Not lacking integrity, but going as far as he could to be considerate of the faith of other people. To be aware of, of their concerns. Paul's Semitic sensitivity is no surprise. He cares about his own. Now again, the irony is he's carrying the letter from Jerusalem that says they don't have to do what he just did to poor little Timothy. But verse 5 going on. Verse 4. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number Daily. And so I actually think the message of Paul carried an even greater weight because of the considerate circumcision of Timothy. Because he was willing to say, look, we just don't want this to be a problem. It made the message of grace sound even more credible. Listen, listen. Living a righteous life lends credibility to the message of grace. It doesn't detract from it. And sometimes as Christians... We think, well, if I'm going to preach grace, I've got to show everybody how badly I need it. I've got to show everybody that I messed up too, so we're all in this grace thing together. No, that makes grace incredible, uncredible. You want to give grace credibility, live a righteous life so what? someone can look at you and say, how is it that you're so different now? How is it that, that you who I know you needed grace, but now... There are so many things turned around in your life. And you're pursuing this holiness thing and you seem to know God's Word really well and you love to go to worship. What's that all about? And you can say, it's about grace. See, grace has a purifying effect in our lives. So here goes Paul and he's he's cut off the argument before it ever occurs. No pun intended. (laughs) And the churches are growing because Paul is not about... Winning arguments, he's about what? Winning souls. And we ought to be the same way. Not about winning arguments, not about debating, not about fighting, but about winning souls and doing whatever it takes. So the churches are growing, but suddenly, while the churches are growing, the mission is slowing. Verse 6. They pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, now they're heading west. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. This is so weird. I can't imagine standing up here on a Sunday morning and saying, listen... I was driving to church this morning and I had my message all prepared. I can show you my notes, but God said don't preach. So, you know, I got nothing. The Spirit said stop. The Spirit said don't teach the Word. Don't share the Gospel. Forbade Paul and Silas from the very mission that they were on. This is so strange. The mission is shut down in Asia, the road to Bithynia denied. You may not go this way. The word forbidden there is koluo in the Greek, and it means kept from or restrained or prevented. So it's used in those various ways. Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I plan to come to you and have been prevented, koluo, so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of the Gentiles. I want to get there. I want to come to Rome. I just can't seem to... I'm being
1: prevented. I'm
0: being held back. (laughs) I wonder if on this mission, Paul was stressing the small stuff. They try to go to Bithynia? No go. They try and preach the Gospel more through Asia. The Lord says, no. So what I would call... This would be number three... We had grandmotherly guidance and we had considerate circumcision. And make sure you write down all of those points because they will get you into heaven.
1: (laughs) Number
0: three is holy hindrances. Holy hindrances. It's the little stuff, gang. Sometimes it really bugs us and frustrates. Holy hindrances. Paul and Silas realize here that it's Jesus shutting them down. He's the one blocking their path. Jesus is the one impeding the mission. And by the way, it makes no human sense. If you were going to plant a church in that region, Bithynia would be a go-to place to plant a church. Bithynia was a huge population base. It's up near the Black Sea. Bithynia and Pontus is the area up there large population of people man if you're going to plant a church go to the middle of a city if you're going to start a church go to Seattle or Kirkland or, or at least up to Bellingham for crying out loud no go to North Whitby Island are you kidding me Lord he often chooses the little places and in this case would not let them go up to Bithynia lots of people lots of opportunity for the gospel and by the way historically the word does spread to bithynia we know this for a fact first peter chapter 1 verse 1 peter's writing he says peter an apostle of jesus christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia who are chosen According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure, Bithynia got the Gospel. Just not from Paul. Just not now. In fact, we don't even know if Paul ever went there. Ever got up to Bithynia. And the question is not whether or not they would receive the Gospel, it's why didn't the Lord let them go? what? In my timing, I want people to know Jesus as fast as possible. Yesterday would be fine. You know, when I'm talking to people about Jesus, and they're like, ah, I'm not sure if I really believe I want them to know now. And sometimes the Lord says, wait for it. Hang on. They're going to know me. But then he is going to get saved. Just not by Paul. And not yet. Why? Why? I've always got to ask the question, why? Why, Lord, are you preventing Paul? Why do you sideline Silas? Why thwart Timothy? This is his first missionary journey out, and it's not going too well so far. Paul says, join the team, and they're like the Seahawks. They're four for four. (laughs) They're just not doing well. The gospel's not going. They're being prevented. Why, Lord? And I think he would say, Isaiah 55, verse 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And by the way, that's one reason He has blessed us with His Word. That when we don't know what He's doing, when we don't understand His thoughts or His ways, we might learn how to discern the mind of God. That we might learn through studying and seeing how He works and seeing what He does, That wow, he, He really does know what He's doing. And our faith increases. And then when we're in those blind spots of life, it's cool. God knows what He's doing. His ways are not my ways. In fact, in Isaiah 55, it goes on to say, and I love this passage, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. Without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it, but listen, listen, Isaiah then says this. Actually, the Lord through Isaiah says for you will go out with joy, and you will be led forth with peace. I could use both of those—little joy, little peace. In fact, I think for most of us, if we have some joy and some peace, and if you're throwing some love, we're good to go. You will be. You will go out with joy, you will be led forth with peace, and hey, we have His Word so that we might not strive our way through what seem to be obstacles, hindrances, issues, problems, concerns, worries, fears that come up in our lives. God says, look, just spend some time in my Word. Have you found, I I know the answer to this, I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you found that when you come in on a Wednesday night stressed out, you leave here the same, or do you leave here encouraged? I mean, isn't it usually encouraged? I always leave here. I don't know about y'all, but I get in my car and I'm driving home just like, yeah, right. Word of the Lord. So encouraging. I go out with joy, and I am led forth with peace, led forth led forth because not only do I have the joy that comes by His Word, but I have the peace that comes by His Spirit. His Spirit who leads. And note that we're told that they were forbidden, verse 6, by the Holy Spirit. And then we're told that the Spirit of Jesus, verse 7, did not permit them. Luke is specific. The Spirit of Jesus is the one putting up the roadblocks. These are, in fact, holy hindrances. And by the way, this is, without a doubt, a huge identification. The Spirit of Jesus. It's the only time in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is named the Spirit of Jesus. The rest of the time you will see the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. You will hear the Spirit of Christ. But this is the only place specifically... Oh, actually, let me pull that back. You won't even hear the Spirit of Christ. You'll just hear Spirit of Jesus right here. And I think it's absolutely intentional on the part of the Lord. This is the Spirit of Jesus because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. This is not identification theft. Okay? The Spirit of Jesus. We see this four times in the Scriptures. Once in the book of Acts, once in Romans, chapter 8, verse 9, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not dwell in him. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, same Spirit. I know we've been over this, but sometimes people miss it. And this is one of the most powerful things I think I've ever learned about the Lord to understand the deep intimacy between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Then when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we are talking about the Spirit of Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 19 is the third place. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, Paul writes to the church of Philippi, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Peter takes it even a step further. He goes so far as to reveal that the Spirit of Jesus is the very one who inspired the Hebrew prophets. You Bible students know this. 1 Peter 1, verse 10, The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Jesus was telling the prophets about what was going to happen to Jesus. Well, of course He was. He's God. And if you want to have a name for the Holy Spirit, if you've been one of those who all your life you thought, boy, I just... You know, God the Father, I, I know there's, I can call him Adonai, Yahweh, Jehovah, I've got some names for God, in fact there are plenty of names. Uh, Yahweh, uh, Jirah, my provider, I mean, you go on and on down the list. Jesus, I can call him Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus, if I'm in a Greek mood, you know, I can call him these names. What do I call the Holy Spirit? Just call him Jesus. Spirit of Jesus. How does he do it? How does Jesus forbid, block, prevent Paul and Silas from doing the mission in Asia or going up to Bithynia? And I think that's an interesting question. We have to kind of sneak around and try to pick out some clues to see if we can understand. But I'll tell you this much, Paul's a juggernaut. If you know anything about Paul, you know once he gets started on something, he does not stop. The guy is full on OCD. He focuses, he fixates, and he goes. And you do not get in his way or you get rolled over by the gospel chariot. Okay, that's Paul. So how does Jesus stop Paul in the midst of his tracks? Hey, he had to blind him on the road to Damascus, didn't he? There's no stopping this brutal guy. So down he goes and he can't see a thing. so So of course, that'll stop him. And it may be exactly what Jesus did here. What are you talking about? I mean, blind him. Many scholars are convinced that Paul was struck with a debilitating, nearly blinding Asian fever on this second missionary journey, on this tour of ministry. And that is what shut down his plans to preach the Gospel in Asia. What kept them from being able to head up to Bithynia. Interesting. You can almost hear Silas go, Holy hindrance, Batman! <laughs> Verse 6 says... They pass through, note this, here's clue number one, they pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region. Hmm. So where are Paul and Silas when they get hindered? They're in Galatia. Keep your finger here and turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Now Paul is fighting the battle for grace with the Galatian churches. He is fighting the battle they are there's a strong Jewish contingent and they're all trying to go back to the party of the circumcision and they're trying to follow after the Judaizers who are saying you got to keep the whole law and you got to do all these certain things and if you don't keep the list you're not going to go to heaven and you're not really a follower of Jesus and Paul is standing on grace. Grace, grace, grace. In verse 12 of chapter 4, he says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. Right? He's all thanks to all people. To the Jews, he became more Jewish. You know, to reach them. I- I've spoken your language. I'm one of you. Become like me, a man of grace. And then he says in verse 13, But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you The first time. Now, someone might say, oh wait, okay, bodily illness the first time, but that's the first missionary journey. No, the word there is the former time or previously. So he's saying, you know, I got sick. A bodily illness I had when I preached the Gospel to you previously. And verse 14, that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as, as Christ Jesus Himself. Remember the reception you gave me, even though I was deathly ill, Paul's saying? And then he says, where then is that sense of blessing that you had? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Why would they have to pluck out their eyes? Perhaps because he was so debilitated he was going blind. And there are many who think, there are some who think the thorn in Paul's flesh was blindness. An inability, I mean, and and we see many of Paul's letters are written by another hand. Why? Perhaps because he had very dim vision. We we don't know that for sure, but it's interesting here, he talks about in Galatia, how when he was there previously, he had a debilitating illness that truly made him go blind? I think that's what's going on. Go back over to Acts chapter 16. And think about this now in context. If that is, and this is an if, so we're still kind of in the world of surmise, don't lay this down as doctrine, but if this be the case, that what hindered Paul from this mission was a debilitating Asian fever, blindness the whole nine yards, then it was Jesus who made him sick. It was Jesus who used this illness to stop Paul, the juggernaut, from rolling forward. Wait a minute. Are you saying Jesus might cause illness? That's exactly what I'm saying. Because you see, Proverbs 16.9 tells us, the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, I'm not saying this for a non-believer, but I'll tell you, believers, if you give your lives over into the hands of Jesus, be prepared for Him to use you how He sees fit. Not to cause pain. Not to cause turmoil. He doesn't delight in our illnesses. Not in the least. But He will use them for faith. He will walk us into places we would never have gone. He will show Paul things Paul never would have seen with good eyes. And He'll do that with you and with me if we'll have faith for it. And the good thing is, Jesus being God knows the level of your faith, my faith. He's not going to give you more than you can handle. He's not going to turn up the heat more than than He knows that you're ready to take, but He'll take it right up to the limit. And in this case... Paul and Silas, they knew exactly what was going on. Can you imagine Paul's lying sick in bed going, this is the Lord. He's he's, he's stopping things here. Silas going, yeah, I think so. I think this is Jesus. He'll use whatever He needs to keep us on track into eternity. He'll use His Word. He will use His voice. He will speak to us. He will speak through the saints. Fellowship of believers. He will lead us, teach us, draw us through teaching, through prophecy, through worship. He does it through words of knowledge, word of wisdom, dreams, visions, all these different ways God will work with through and in His people I think the most fundamental and basic and important is that we be in His Word It keeps us grounded in all these other things. But it's interesting, Luke is not specific with us here as to why, what it was that truly impeded them, that hindered them from the mission. Why not? Because you can't pigeonhole God. And I think it's great wisdom that the Spirit doesn't even allow Luke to tell us what's happening. Why are they hindered? We don't know. Why? Because if we knew why, we would either avoid it like the plague, (laughs) or the ultra-spiritual would chase it down. So he just leaves it there. Holy hindrances. My friends, he may not work in you the way he will work in me. And he may not work in me the way he's working in you. Don't look for him to work the same way in every person's life. Just, just look for him. Period. Don't miss the little gestures of the spirit. Don't miss the work of God. And if you are right now tonight in pain over something, I would encourage you to stop and say, Lord, is it you? Are you the one? He's the one who opens doors. He's the one who closes doors. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. So Paul and Silas, they they realize who is hindering the effort. Do you. Let me give you a silly example. Doug walks in here. Tuesday morning? Yeah, Tuesday morning. And he comes in to sign a check because Yeva needed a check signed and Doug's on the finance team coming in to sign the check and and the check had already been signed. But hey, good news. Doug had a flat tire that morning that required him to go down to Les Schwab and Oak Harbor. So he was able to take the check for Yeva. She could keep working and he took the check to the bank. It was perfect timing. (laughs) Did the Lord give Doug the flat? Is that you, Jesus? (laughs) Listen, little things. Why did the cell phone go down right when your son or daughter needed to talk to mom and dad? You know? Uh, Why do these frustrating, as I said earlier, first world problems happen at all? Why did the computer crash? I had this big project I had to get done. And the computer went down. I ended up in the water cooler talking to a guy about Jesus for half an hour. (laughs) so frustrating (laughs) don't miss the small stuff I think it's wise to always ask Jesus are you the one getting in my way are you the one hindering me Lord because if it's Jesus hindering you he's got something better better than your plans better than mine And He's the one who wants to lead you forth in joy and peace. And so, let me leave you with this thought on this point. Romans 15.13 May the God of hope fill you, fill me with all joy and peace in believing so that we will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord hindering Paul and Silas. And by the way, Timothy. Oh, and by the way, Luke. Luke as well. Ironically, now when the Lord finally does open the door for Paul and company to go on, it is via a vision. Verse 9, pick it up. If Paul's been blinded, it's a vision that opens the door. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke now joins up Team Paul. He's on the team. Now you've got Paul, you've got Silas, you've got Timothy, and you've got Luke. The four of them are working in this mission together. We know this because suddenly the narrative changes from they to we. And throughout chapter 16, you see that word we used because Luke is right there talking about what we were doing. Picking up in verse 17 all the way through chapter 20, or chapter 17 through 20, you're going to see it goes back to they. Because now Luke and Timothy get left behind. They end up staying to do more work. Paul and Silas will go on. So we'll follow that through and I'll point that out to you as we get there. But one more little clue to the potentiality of Paul's illness. If Paul was in fact terribly sick, what was Luke? He's a doctor. I want to know. I would be fascinated to know if that's why he met Paul. So next time you're in the doctor's office, <laughs> tell them about Jesus. Just do it. So verse eleven, continuing, putting out to sea from Troas. Troas, by the way, is uh, originally the city of Troy. Just a, I don't know, just a little thing, not important. We ran a straight course to Samothrace. And on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. Remember, vision from Macedonia. A man saying, come over and help. So they, they sail across to help. It's a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And I wonder, would Paul have seen the vision if he had been head down, plowing his way up to Bithynia? Forcing his way. You know, there was a hindrance from the Lord, but if he just shook it off and went and did what he had planned to do in the first place, would he have missed the whole opportunity now for what the Lord is about to do? Again, when you wait on the Lord as as Paul and Silas did, you see things you wouldn't otherwise see. Who is the Macedonian man? A man a vision. Paul sees this guy lying on his bed. Sees this man from Macedonia. Who is he? No idea. I don't have a clue. I I, kind of thought because we're going to meet a Philippian jailer in in a bit. Actually, we probably won't tonight, but maybe he looked like the jailer. I don't know. The, The Bible doesn't tell us. There's nothing specific. All we know is that the call came, and get this, from a location where the gospel had never gone. In fact, Philippi is the first city in Europe now to reach the gospel. They leave Asia and they go into Macedonia, which is, today, it's Europe. So the gospel is spreading further out west than it would have if Paul had just stayed there in Asia and buzzed around in Bithynia. He's now going into Europe. He sees this man, this, this Macedonian. He knew it was a Macedonian man. We would say he knew it was a European. I don't know if he was smoking a cigarette and had a mail purse, but you know they just somehow knew. <laughs> European. See, this is why, Glenn, I'm not on the radio. That'd be it, right there. So Philippi is the first city, again, of what is today Europe. It was founded by King Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Another little nugget for you. And it's into this city now that the greater name of Jesus will go. Gospel's going west. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, so they're in Philippi, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Don't miss the little things. Even a single verse like this can contain far more information than we might think. And here I'm going to give you the only negative little thing that I'll give you tonight. And it is a missing minion. A missing minion. Not like the Gru minions from Despicable Me, those of you cartoon fans. M-I-N-Y-A-N. Min-Yan. A A missing minion. Let me explain. What we learn from this verse is there was a severe drought of male leadership in Philippi among the Jewish people. How do we know? Two reasons. They go out to the place of prayer. They don't go to the synagogue. You see, to have a synagogue in a city, you had to have at least ten observant Jewish men. The Jewish Hebrew word for that is a minion. And the minion was missing. There are not ten Jewish men observing Judaism in all of Philippi. If there was, there would be a synagogue. There is no synagogue. Therefore, there's a missing minion. Rabbi Halofta Bendosa, I know he's a favorite of many of you, the sayings of the Jewish fathers, which is an old and ancient saying of the old rabbis, he said the following, he said, When ten people sit together and occupy themselves with Torah, the Shekinah glory abides among them, as it is said, God standeth in the congregation, Psalm 82, verse 1. And so there was a belief among all the rabbis, and this goes back even predating the days of Jesus, a belief among the rabbis that if you had ten observant Jewish men, you had a quorum of sorts. You could have a synagogue, and God would be there. That He would be in the midst of that congregation. And so the synagogue system that we believe was set up by Ezra, by the way, was based on that. If you had ten observant Jewish men in a city, you could have a synagogue, and all the Jewish people would come there to pray and to study the Word. I like Jesus' standard better. He said, Where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. But whenever there was a missing minion, when the male Jews were AWOL, an appointed meeting place could also be designated. And here in Philippi, the favorite song of the faithful few was Shall we gather at the river? So they had a riverside gathering and this is where the faithful Jews could go and meet and pray and they all knew of the spot. And Paul and Silas discover the spot and they head out there to pray and we come to the second reason why we see a severe lack of male leadership. Not only the place of prayer, but the people at prayer. The women who had assembled. Where are the men? Was there a game on that day? What's what's the deal here? No doubt Paul went out thinking, remember the vision? What did he see? A Macedonian man. Man. Alright, we're going to go to the men of Macedonia because the man is calling for help. And off we go to see the men. And there are no men. Well, there are men, but they're certainly not faithful. They're not gathering for prayer. They're out in the fields or doing their work or whatever it is that the men were doing. But Paul goes out to the river and he finds a group of women. My friends, they were having the same problem back then that the church is having today. We need Macedonian men in the church. We need men who are willing to stand up and appeal, come help our country, Lord. Send help, Father. We need in this church, as well as in the larger church family, we need men willing to... To roll up their sleeves, lift up their hands, and pray. Mm-hmm. Men of prayer. We have women of prayer. And no offense, ladies, but you, you bless me incredibly by the number of women who are always showing up to pray. We have a prayer night. Guarantee there will be more women than men. And I, being a man, can speak to this. We need Macedonian men who are appealing to the Lord who are crying out for help. The abdication of male leadership in the Western church today is astounding. We were just talking about that the other day, Glenn and I. And we see it right and left. We see churches giving up male leadership for female leadership. Now ladies, please stay with me on this because let me say this very clearly. Women are every bit as intelligent, capable, capable, Spiritual as any man to do the job of leading. The issue of male leadership in the church has nothing to do with men being better at it. In fact, in many cases, we're not as good at it, which I think is part of the reason why God wants us doing it. But it is so important to understand that this this abdication of leadership it's it's not unprecedented. It's sad. But even Paul had to write to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Timothy, tell the men to pray. Get the men involved in prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement, so you can count on this one. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, that is episkopos, bishop, elder, pastor... It is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer must then be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Now, up until the Supreme Court decision, it was clear what that meant. The husband of one wife. In other words, men are called to be elders, pastors, overseers. Women are not. Well, that's just bigoted and chauvinistic.
1: And...
0: <laughs> it's not my word. I didn't write it. I just accept it. And again, it does not mean women are less valued by Jesus. I have to go home and see my wife. <laughs> Galatians chapter three, verse twenty-eight makes it so clear. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we can set aside the whole issue of, oh, well, the men are just over the women at that church. Oh, they're just patriarchal at that church. I don't know that being patriarchal is such a bad thing. And one of the most subtle, little, seemingly insignificant issues facing the church today, affecting the church, is the erosion of healthy, biblical male leadership. And I've seen more women nod than men right now. Because they understand this. That's what we want. Yes, please, guys, would you leave? Get off the couch. Put down the remote. What do you get when strong, godly men stay home? Read on. Verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart. I love that. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. When you came to faith, it was because the Lord opened your heart. When anybody chooses Jesus, it's because the Lord opened their heart. And in that moment, they said, yes, Lord. And so this Lydia does. Lydia, I like Lydia. Lydia. Daily. She lives right down the street from us. She's a sweet girl, Lydia. I like this Lydia too. Lydia is a faithful follower. Probably a Gentile proselyte. Because of where she lives and because of her name, Lydia. She's got a Greek name. And she's a proselyte then to Judaism. And now she finds Jesus to be the focus of Scripture. Paul begins speaking to her. I don't know what he was teaching. Maybe Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Maybe Isaiah 53, Daniel chapter 9, I don't know. But, but he's teaching from the Hebrew Scriptures and opening their minds to understand. And the Lord opens her heart and she gives her life to Jesus then and there. And I don't want to take anything away from this important moment of faith and from Lydia. This is all we hear about Lydia in all the Scriptures is just these few verses here. A precious sister in the Lord who I look forward to meeting one day. But i got to get back to the question, what do you get when the minion is missing? What do you get when the men stay home? You get Thyatira. Huh? You get Thyatira. Many historians believe Lydia, who is from Thyatira, but she's residing in Philippi. She's a seller of purple fabrics. Well, that's because this color purple comes from Thyatira. It's a very, very expensive, very very lucrative business for Lydia to be in because this, this purple that they would use to stay in these royal uh, fabrics, these royal textiles, the, the purple, you would get one drop per shellfish. And so it was hard to come by, and, and Thyatira was the, the place that it was generated and that it was made. And so she's a seller of these fabrics, and she's living in Philippi, having come from Thyatira. She's in Philippi, meets the Lord here, and there are many historians who believe she went home to Thyatira, and it was Lydia who founded the church there in Thyatira. And we think that because she's the only connection we have to the fourth of the seven churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3, the church at Thyatira. Now, to get the full weight of what I'm getting to here, what I'm getting at, you got to go online and listen to the whole teaching. So jot down Revelation 2, verses 18-29, through 29, and when you have time, go listen to that teaching. It's Jesus' message to the church at Thyatira and think through what it is that Jesus is saying. Let me give you a taste. Here's the, the deal. The church at Thyatira may have been founded by a spiritual woman. Lydia, but later it floundered by a seductive woman, who Jesus refers to by an Old Testament name, Jezebel. Jesus says in Revelation 2 verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By the way, not a problem for a woman to be a prophetess. We know Philip had four daughters who all were prophetesses. So it's not that a woman can't be a prophetess. It's that this Jezebel was a sick sinner. She calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And we see then that there's an abdication of male leadership in the area. Lydia, if she does go back to Thyatira, if she does start the church there, ultimately one of the big issues at the church in Thyatira is female leadership. Is the woman this Jezebel was driving things, was leading things. And for the church, and again, I'm not going to go much further than that. Go listen to the teaching because we really get deep into it. But for the church to function as designed not by Pastor Rick, not by the Board of Shepherds at the bridge, not by some denominational committee, the church as designed by God for it to function correctly, it needs Macedonian men standing up and praying and faithful women standing beside them. And the church is losing it, gang. And I feel so strongly about this. Again, some might say, you're just so behind the times, Rick. You're trying to go back to the old days. And the church in America looks at itself and says how progressive, how relevant, how open-minded, how inclusive we are, and look where it's getting the church in America. So you think the letter of Jesus to Thyatira might have meaning for today? I think the letter of Jesus to Thyatira is speaking to an element of the church today. An actual body of believers within the larger church body on earth today. Why? Because Revelation 2:21 Jesus says, "I gave her this Jezebel time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into listen into great tribulation." unless they repent of their deeds. The Great Tribulation happens at the end of this age, which means this is a church present in the world today. This is an element of Christendom, the larger church, that is following wholeheartedly after the leadership of a woman. I'm going to leave it right there. Paul tackles the issue in his letters. Especially in his letter to Corinth, in his letter to Timothy, there in Ephesus. And for it, Paul will be branded, and you may have heard this, Paul was a chauvinist. Paul was a bigot. He's not. And by the way, neither am I. Honestly, I think we dishonor our sisters when we throw the mantle of leadership on their shoulders and we walk away as men. I don't think it's right. And where there is a vacuum of male leadership, women will always spiritually fill it. Deborah did. It's a vacuum of leadership in Israel. No men standing up to fight the good fight, and so Deborah gets called upon. And ultimately, she does it. Barack doesn't want to. I'm not making this stuff up. That was his name. <laughs> And Deborah says, you got to fight. I will stand up and do my part. But you, come on, man. Come on, man. And here's Deborah. Stands up, fills the gap. Women will step in and fill the gap when men refuse to. Thank God for my spiritual sisters who will step up when sadly the men step back. And I don't mean to bash on the men because you know what? In this fellowship we have some strong Macedonian men and I am so pleased to say that. I just wish we could say it for more of the church. Well, Lydia embraces this teaching of Paul. She's to be highly commended. She's a woman of of deep faith. And ladies, let me just say this to you. Whether your husband leads you, or tracks alongside you, or even trails after you, you just be sure your first love is Jesus. Okay? He's your man. Verse 15. When she and her household had been baptized, doesn't even mention her husband. That's implicit. But when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. Well, of course she did. How do you say no to that? If you think I'm faithful, please come stay with me. Well, if they don't, they're saying they don't think she's faithful. So, of course, they go and they, they stay at Lydia's house. She's a saleswoman. Not only a seller of perfect purple fabrics, but this, this woman knows how to sell stuff. So, so they go, they stay there, and we're back to one more, this will be the last one, one more good small thing that makes a huge difference. She prevailed upon us, gang, it's a hospitable home. A hospitable home. Don't ever underestimate the value of hospitality in the church. May even be a spiritual gift. Gift of hospitality? Peter says in 1 Peter 4-9, be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a gift, employing it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Be hospitable, he says, as each one has received a gift. And I, for one, think hospitality is not only an attitude that we're to generate and to develop as followers of Jesus, but hospitality in some people, it's a gift. They just have it. Everyone wants the gift of tongues. Or the gift of miracles. Or the gift of healings. You just don't hear people clamoring for the gift of hospitality. Oh Lord. Then I will know I'm truly a Christian if I have the gift of hospitality. <laughs> it's the little things. And this is absolutely just my opinion, but my guess is that hospitality is more valuable to God than all the tongues of men and angels combined. Because if I have the tongues of men and if I can speak in the tongues of angels, but if I have not love, I'm nothing. I'm a gong. How'd you like to be a gong? Gong. That's all you are. If you have not love. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. That's a great list of a bunch of little things that matter so much in the church. So we have Lydia, the first convert in Europe, not a man, but a woman. She now in her whole household. And another woman comes along. Let's just get our feet into this one. It happened as we were going to the place of prayer, verse 16, a slave girl having a spirit of divination. That word divination is where we get our word python. So she's got a snaky spirit. and She was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, Luke writes, she kept crying out saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. I love it. He turned and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her at that very moment. And their slave girl, who was a prophet, no longer brought them any prophets. Why did Paul cast the demon out? I mean, it's free advertising. The demon was not saying, don't listen to them, ignore them, they're liars. No, the demon was saying, these are servants of the Most High God. Man, that's like having a big billboard out on Highway 20. Go to the bridge fellowship with flashing lights and and a woman saying, yeah, go, yeah, go. I mean, that. why would you shut her down, Paul? Well, she was annoying. No, it was going on for days days of this woman. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, I think it was a show of uh, of deep Christian faith on Paul's part that he didn't just say, shut up! He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, (laughs) I command thee, boy, come out of her! And the demon comes out. Why does Paul do it? Because that's not the kind of advertising the church needs. Church doesn't need someone bellowing on a street corner, shouting out from a place of supposed prophecy. God is not a fan of the false prophet. It's why we spend so much time in His Word that when prophecy does come, we can test it. We know if it's really the Lord because we're so used to hearing His voice. So He casts this demon out, this annoying false... advert. I mean, she's advertising truly, but it's just not the way... The church does it. How does the church do it? Well, contrast her with Lydia. The gospel is most effectively, simply, and personally given one by one by one by one. Not by shouting out in a big voice, not by putting up the big sign, not by having big campaigns, but just you telling a friend, you telling a son, a daughter, you sharing with a brother, a sister, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, as I told you before, we have no idea how the gospel got to Thyatira except for Lydia. She's our only guess. And I think she did take the gospel back there and told someone who told someone who told someone and the church grows. Last thing, Paul is annoyed at this woman blurting out but the word annoyed, diaponethius, in the Greek also means grieved. Paul's grieved. Why are you grieved, Paul? By the poor publicity? Well, perhaps, but also because a day goes by and another and another, and Paul starts to realize this slave girl is being used. And this is not okay. This is not right. And so what does Paul say? In Jesus' name, he sets her free. And now she's the second woman to be set free in Europe. Because that's what the Gospel does. And we'll come back Sunday for the rest of the story. Father, we thank You for the freedom of the Gospel. We thank You for the simplicity, Lord, of the work that You've called us to. And I pray, Father, that You would open our eyes, even now, tonight, to look at what You're doing. Not to miss the little nudges, even the hindrances and the obstacles that You may put in our way. Help us, Father, to be truly led by the Spirit of Jesus. And in that leading, Father, may we have eyes wide open to to the Lydia's, to the slave girls in this world. To those who are oppressed, Use us, Father, to be speakers of the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, strengthen the godliness and the faith of our women. Strengthen the godliness and the faith of our men. May we all function the way you've called us to, together, unified in the name of Jesus Christ for the sake of the gospel. And send us out of here encouraged, Father,
1: with joy and with peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.